From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? This week, the big interview, and joining me, as always, for the big interview and everything else, for that matter, my two partners in crime in London, Giles Morgan. Hello, sir. Hey, Grant. How are you going? Mate, I'm very well. Pleasure to see your smiling face last week over a pie. <laughs> yeah, I'm still digesting it. It was a, a mega pie, and, and, and uh, the, the Welsh rare bit was very nice, too, wasn't that it? That was superb. That was absolutely superb. Now, Rogers has broken the first rule of broadcasting because he hasn't been introduced yet. So that voice you heard in the background there <laughs> was the other the other musketeer, Roger Mitchell. Hi, mate. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking a lot better than Giles is. He's got what um, I'm told is man flu. Uh, and he's made a, a stoic effort to be with us today, which we all appreciate. The listeners are going to be delighted that he's joining us today. Anything for you, boys. Anything. No doubt whatsoever. Well, gents, we have a guest joining us today, which um, is uh, is obviously de rigueur for the big interview, otherwise we would be talking to each other. And who wants to listen to that? <laughs> so, Roger, why don't you tell the folks out there listening who will be joining us shortly? Sure. Uh, this is going to be quite a, a long introduction because it's Dan Porter, who is the founder and CEO of Overtime. Uh, Overtime is one of those companies that I'd like to uh, say that we've been flagging for a long time now. Maybe as far back as season one, it's one of the ones that I've always said was going to make a significant change to the ecosystem of sport. Uh, and I think in this interview, we'll get into it. I think everybody probably knows what overtime is, but it'll become apparent. But but, but Dan has got an amazing background. He uh, is a serial entrepreneur. He's had a, cu- a couple of exits of, of, of significant value. He has worked at Endeavour uh, or in its previous guise as William Morris. Um, he's he's worked at uh, Zynga. Um, his background is that, uh, amazingly, at the start, he was a teacher. Uh, I think he was a teacher in Brooklyn. He comes from a family of academia. He grew up in Philadelphia. And he is, I think, one of the, the most vocal uh, advocates of the fact that sport is changing dramatically, especially Gen Z, and that the community of Gen Z is more important in many ways than the sports that are trying to attract them. Uh, we'll get, we'll hear a lot about that going forward. But um, Dan Porter is an absolute thought leader and disruptor in our sector, and he's very outspoken. Fantastic. We know someone else like that, don't we, Giles? Yeah, I was, I was just just trying to rack my brains of who that sounded like, but I couldn't. <laughs> yes, I couldn't exactly, exactly. A few more, a few more zeros on the bank bank account. That's the only difference. A few more zeros. <laughs> why don't Why don't we stop pontificating and invite Dan to join us, Roger? What do you think? Perfect, Dan Porter. Welcome to Are You Not Entertained? Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you here, Dan. Uh, we've been a follower on this podcast of Overtime. I would say for at least three years, well before the latest developments around what you've been doing to to sports leagues and everything like that. And it's been because I think we've been a believer that Gen Z and building a community there is perhaps almost equally as important as sports trying to reach out in some way and grab Gen Z. We've always looked at overtime as a little bit bottom up, which I'm sure we'll get into. I'd like to ask you a little bit about growing up in Philly. Um, (laughs) Yeah, because like uh, you Rocky. Up, Rocky, <laughs> uh, but you but but listen, you grew up in a family of university professors, so you know it's difficult to understand how Dan Porter, the way you are today, whatever, whatever adjective you want to use. But I mean, h- how does that come about? Growing up in Philly, two university professors, how does that translate into who you are now? That's a good question. I think my parents wonder the same question. Uh, So first and foremost, you know, I I grew up right outside of Philadelphia, kind of in the suburbs. So I don't want to portray myself as Rocky or a hard scrabble city kid. Philadelphia is one of those cities like Los Angeles. that's very, very spread out. 
um it's almost like 50 miles and so it's it's less like new york city where it's this kind of concentrated downtown um and it's also one of those cities that uh i'm sure you see in the uk and and we see it in the united states cleveland pittsburgh kind of cities that are big but they're not the number one city right they're not la and they're not chicago and they're not new york and so sports and being from those places has a huge passionate part of your identity because you're not famous for hollywood and you're not famous for wall street and 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 for and broadway and for all of those other things like that um and so you know i think that that obviously was was part of it it was part of fandom I mean, I, I grew up before cable television, really. There wasn't, I mean, MTV came out when I was a senior in high school. And so it was that kind of time when everybody watched the same thing. Like you just turned on the TV at that time. Everybody watched Happy Days, which was a TV show. Everybody watched a sports event. Um, and there was a, a kind of a more y- y- unification of culture to some extent. Uh, and... You know, I, I I obviously grew up in a very academic family. I mean, both of my parents only had the same job their entire life. They were college professors. So I would say for me, it wasn't necessarily about academics per se, although I was good at school, but I was really good at learning stuff. And maybe that was their influence or that was just in that environment. Um, but, you know, it was an environment where a lot of questions were asked uh where you know you felt like you could learn anything i mean i i grew up as a musician and i played the piano but then i played the guitar and i could say i could almost except for like a stringed instrument i could almost play almost any instrument to some extent um and so you know and you're in a place where there's a lot of dialogue and talking about politics my mother was a delegate to multiple um democratic conventions my parents were very involved in kind of grassroots activism so i'd say it's kind of that combination of like you know every good entrepreneur to some extent has a chip on their shoulder about something they've got something that they want to prove that makes them hungrier and work harder um and there's no doubt that the city of Philadelphia has a chip on its shoulder. And in my lifetime, at least in football, we won a Super Bowl and we've won other championships. But you kind of internalize that no matter how different you are from your next door neighbor or the person down the street. Everyone has that in common. And I think for me, uh, just the ability to learn at a high rate. Right. I've worked in the ticketing business. I've worked in the games business. I'm working in the sports business. I don't have any inherent special knowledge but I do believe that I can apply myself and really learn at a rapid rate. And, you know, my dad was a mathematician, so I was at least comfortable with numbers. And my mom was a sociologist, was a lot about kind of data aggregation and talking to people and learning things and having hypotheses. And I guess a bunch of that kind of uh, impacted me, whether it was conscious or subconscious. And I'd say the last thing is that you know, at least in the United States, college professors have the summer off. And so every summer I traveled, I've been to 49 out of 50 states. Um, In my second grade, I went to second grade half the year in South Africa, half the year in Jerusalem while my parents were on sabbatical. So I had an enormous amount of exposure um, to just many different places that I think a lot of people didn't have and they certainly didn't have back then and my parents were very fearless about schlepping three young children all over the world i've driven across country twice i've driven across canada in the back of a station wagon and i think all of that gives you an appreciation and in a way it kind of reduces fear and the more you can reduce fear due to lots of things you know the more you can take risks as an entrepreneur i guess Hey, Dan, I was going to ask another question, which I will, but which is the state you haven't been to? Which is the, the 50th <laughs> That state was my question, too. <laughs> uh, Alaska, because you can't drive there. Okay. Um, and that, ta- that takes a lot of planning. And back then, it took an enormous amount of planning. Oh, Dan, and I'm... I'm- very disappointed i didn't know you were a piano player me too we could have done we could have done an improvisation across the world as we are now but i'll i'll try and ask a sensible question i read your linkedin profile which is quite funny and and it's something and it's something you've obviously you've obviously got humor comes through in not just your linkedin but some of the things that you talk about on podcasts and when you've been interviewed but there also seems to be 
it's not an anger. There's a frustration to the world. You seem to be a, a man that is, um, if not volatile as such, I just get a sense of unease and restlessness. There's an impatience to you. Is that the real you that we see? Or is this something that is part of the entrepreneur that is creating a brand that people can can kind of follow and understand? Um, I would say that's an interesting question. It, it is definitely more part of me like it's not an act i'm not unhappy i'm a very happy person i've had been had an i mean i have an amazing wife and i have beautiful children and a nice house and you know both my parents knock on wood are still alive and lots of things like that but i i definitely i i think that look all, all our brains are wired in different ways and i think that you know for reasons outside of my control, my brain is wired in a very specific way. And like a really dumb example of that is like, I, I would take math and I'd get the answer, but I wouldn't solve the problem the way that we were supposed to solve the problem. <laughs> and I was like, why does it really matter if I get the answer through all this way? And, you know, they're supposed to teach you a method. And I think that over time, in the same way that I, I was a piano player, but I, I'm actually terrible at classical music, even though I practiced hours and hours. And I loved improvisation. And I loved kind of the act of creation. And in a way, I, I really struggled when I graduated from college because I wanted to be a professional musician. And then I worked in the music industry. And it wasn't until um, really probably eight to 10 years in my career when I understood that the kind of entrepreneurial side, building and creating things kind of hit the same creative instincts that music did for me. And I realized that I could always love music, but it didn't have to be my career. But the idea of improvising and creating, um, I could get from other spaces for sure. And I think over time, it has, it has codified. I mean, I'm talking to you from a hotel in Atlanta and I can tell you it's annoying to me that there's no plug underneath the desk. The plug is in another part of the wall. The water is way too chlorinated and, and tastes disgusting. Like I just notice all these things and I'm like, who builds a hotel where there's no plug like by the desk, you know? Um, and there, and, and, and they close the kitchen at a weird time. And there, there's so many things like that. And I think as I've been in the act of creation, I've realized that that things don't change fast enough. I'm sure no matter what our political beliefs are between the four of us, that we all are like, it, it's like, why does it have to be this way? Like, why couldn't we come up with something united to say about COVID and masking and all of this stuff? And it just seems like there's a level of frustration over the general slowness and incompetence in the world. And I think some of it is because on a very broad sense, there is a lack of global curiosity. There's a lack of a belief that we can do things better. And I tie a lot of that to probably, you know, the monoculture that comes to a very specific type of education. Education rewards you for, you know, filling inside the box and the lines and, you know, I, I'm a college professor at New York University, NYU, and a lot of my students believe there's only one path in life and that you have to major in something that's useful and all wow. of these other things like that. And I, I think as I try to move faster and faster, as I get older and older, I just get frustrated by how slow everything else is, because I do think there's urgency. There's urgency to create amazing things for people. There's urgency to create change. There's urgency to change the climate. There's urgency for so many things. Um, and yet we're, we, we tend to be in this very slower world. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at my LinkedIn, I say some funny things. And to me, like everything is a platform for creative self-expression. And I try to hack all those things. I mean, Amen. when I got my very Amen. first, when I got my very first iPod, I figured out how to crack it open and change the battery and like add memory and do all these other things. And I think we just accept things without really ultimately figuring out how to make them bend to our will rather than vice versa. And so when I even see LinkedIn, I'm like, this could be a platform for people to actually express who they are or to sound like everybody else. And I'm going to choose Amen. the former. Dan, I think you've given us some 
some really good insights into into where this conversation is going to go. Um, but if I can, can, can I put a pin in that and we'll come back to that? Because I'm keen to talk about your background in sport, particularly growing up in a city such as Philly, you know, where sport is such a big deal. You've got Major League Baseball teams, you've got NFL teams, you've got NBA teams, you've got uh, NHL teams, you've got everything there that any sports mad youngster could want to go and see and, and and the kind of players that one would idolize at the age. So who were your heroes? What what were the sports that really grabbed you when you were a kid? Yeah, it's funny. I was a big baseball fan and I played baseball. Um, so I was a Phillies fan. I had three different birthday parties at the Phillies game. I mean, baseball players in the 70s were cool. They had long hair and like <laughs> right. big mustaches and, you know, the outsized personalities and half of them were out of shape. And waistlines. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Um, and then it was funny because I forgot when the baseball strike was at some point in the early 90s. I never watched another baseball game after that. It just kind of fell off my radar. Yeah, it was really. a combination of that strike and I think being starting you know graduating from college and trying to get a job and trying to get married and have kids and i was like i don't have time for you know hundreds of baseball games uh to follow i don't know when they're on or how to access them and everything else like that and i'd say secondarily i was a i was a huge football fan i i loved every player ron jaworski all the players on the philadelphia eagles growing up um philadelphia is an interesting town because it is it's culturally diverse, right? Black, brown, white, but your your white population is very white ethnic, Italian, Irish, Polish. Yeah. Like to say that they're white people is doing a disservice to all the different kind of rich cultures that come together. And look, I mean, the quarterback of the Eagles was a Polish guy, Ron Jaworski, you know, and his running back was a black guy, Wilbur Montgomery, and just had like this kind of it it encapsulated, I think a lot like Pittsburgh and some of these other places, this very kind of blue collar mentality. Um, and, you know, we could always get almost to the championship, but we could never actually get there. <laughs> right. um, and I remember actually, and it's interesting because like, I always say at, we're starting a new league from scratch. Why should anybody care about us, the teams, the players, anything else like that? And I always say like, look, what you're like, what's your end goal? And you could say from a business standpoint, my end goal is to get a meteorites deal or whatever. And I would say my end goal is that somewhere, some, someplace, when one of our teams loses a championship, a kid cries because he's so sad <laughs> that his favorite team has lost a championship. And I can say after the Eagles lost, you know, the Super Bowl, I think it was 2007. I had a dream every single night for two weeks that the game went the other way. Um, and so like, it's, it was so, it was like, it was great. It, it, it gave me a construct to understand what really, really caring about something was. And then I was never a hockey fan, but I was a 76ers fan. I love Dr. J, um, you know, basketball in that era was not as popular. We could drive down to the spectrum, which doesn't really exist anymore in Philadelphia and buy tickets to a championship game and just walk in and watch the game. Um, and again, you had characters and you had, you know, Dr. J, who's this incredibly athletic and graceful athlete um, who is incredible to watch. And so you had a lot of, you know, you had a lot of aspects of imagination and then you had no competition. I mean, there was pinball, but there wasn't really video games in the same way. There wasn't other channels. There wasn't other things. And that was your socialization. And it, it's funny because in a way i look at it now and as much as me wanting to fit in if i went to a new school or there were kids in my neighborhood by saying like i'm an eagles fan or anything else like that you know you have i don't know a quarter of kids now who want to say i'm different and i'm a fan of a team that's not from this city because it's much more about less about fitting in and more about kind of celebrating who you are um, and so sports goes from this kind of thing that says, well, we might be different, but we're all the same. Um, and I think there's a great scene in Silver Linings Playbook, you know, when um, I, uh, when I think they're, they're either Sikh, I think, or Indian, the T that, you know, they come in the bus in the parking lot and you can't believe they're Eagles fans too. And they're all connected with each other. And I think, I, remember I still that think, scene. yeah, yeah. Beautiful. I still think there's a lot of truth to that, but I also think that, um, you know, there's 
we, we have more identities and pronouns and ways of being in the world, which I think are beautiful things than we've ever had before. And I think sports also now is part of expressing individuality as well as expressing conformity. Um, but, but yeah, for me, I'm in a group chat with my friends from high school and we all still primarily 50% of what we talk about is the local sports team. Right. Dan, what was it like? Because when you grew up, I guess you had Dr. J at the, at the beginning of your career, as you say, one of the most graceful athletes I've ever seen. And then the, the Sixers had this kind of long kind of slump until the Iverson years. What's it like being a, in a sports mad town like that when the, the teams go through? Because the Flyers, I think, have gotten to, I don't know how many, seven, eight Stanley Cup finals and, and lost them all since, I guess, the 70s or something like that. They've, they've reached a bunch. And the Phillies haven't really done much. And it's such a sportsman town. What's it like living in a town when really all the teams are going through a slump like that? Uh, it's a funny question. So I think that there's, I think you can see that with like New York Jets fans or Cubs fans yeah. for a long time. It's <laughs> almost like the losing and the expectation that we're always going to blow it becomes part of your personality. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember I went to a football game with my dad when I was 11 years old. So 1977, um, and famously there was a courthouse in the basement of the stadium, a veteran right. stadium with a judge, because there was so many people getting into it that they would throw them in jail. Famously, uh, they booed Santa Claus and threw snowballs at him, including, <laughs> right. including the once and future <laughs> mayor of uh, Philadelphia who took part in that. And I remember there was a fight <laughs> in front of us and I was like, wow, these people are like getting into it. And a guy behind me taps me on the shoulder and kind of moves his hand and asks me if I'll move to the left because he just wants to lean over and just get some licks in, meaning he doesn't know who's fighting, but he just wants to lean over and just hit somebody too. And so like, sure, at the end of the day, it's about winning and losing, but like the, the broader sense of identity creation, the commiseration, the all those things, of course, we're going to blow it. Um, and then my friends always make fun of me because I'm always like, this is the season. This is the season. And they're like, wow, Dan Porter, <laughs> he always is optimistic that things are going to turn. Oh, we have a new player. We have a new whatever. Um, and so I think like every season is like a birth and rebirth cycle um, that you go through. So I, I think that's part of it, too. Dan, I, I'm intrigued. I think you're, we'll talk about your business in a little while, I'm certain, but it's about the fan and your reinterpretation of the fan. You talked about your own fandom as a kid. I used to work for a long time um, working sponsor side for a, a, a global sponsor who talk about the word fan as marketeers do, which I think is the most misunderstood um, the, the the definition of a fan or a fanatic, I'm not sure what it is because it seems to cover a, a litany of bullshit, in my view, of what a true fan is. What to you, whether it's you're talking about Gen Z or whether you're talking about what you grew up with, not in Gen Z, sadly none of us are, what do you think a sports fan is? What What is it about fandom, the emotional connection that makes this not just from a commercial point of view, exciting. But what is fandom? Is it a kind of insanity? Uh, I guess they would call it like religion, a collective delusion. Apologies to anyone who, I mean, sports is a religion in its own form. They're all collective delusions, but they're probably necessary to be human. Um, it, it, I think that like, you know, at the simplest level, we all want to believe in something outside of ourselves. I think we want to participate in community at a broad level. Um, it's like a very condensed version of community, right? You can watch a Premier League match in 90 minutes and wait for a week to watch another one. And all of the, you, you know, they like Debussy famously said, music is the space between the notes. Um, all of the stuff that happens between and around the match becomes the kind of thing that the fan owns to some extent. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's, it's a willingness to give your support, belief, and part of yourself to something that you have no control over, but you secretly believe you might have a little control over, <laughs> um, and experience the winning and losing. And I think to me, the idea is like, 
I love movies, but the fact is that if you've seen the movie or your friend tells you what happens in the movie, you kind of know what the end is going to be. And there are very few things in a condensed basis where the ending is unpredictable. Like we, we all know that the ending of our lives is unpredictable, right? Like a meteor could crash and, and crush us, or we could live to be 200 with some scientific invention, or we could have 50 grandchildren, or we could have no grandchildren or anything else like that. Um, but to, to condense into a 30 to 60 minute or 90 minute experience where the ending can be crazy and unpredictable and for us to put ourselves in that part um, is ultimately exhilarating. It's why we, it's, it's why PKs are so stressful and buzzer beaters are so fun and everything else like that. And I think in a way that the hard part is that when I go to sports conferences, Everyone's a business person, as they should be, but they forget about the emotional thing. It's like monetizing the fan, giving the fan a chance to spend more money and all of these things. And I'll never forget when I was in that kind of in the app business, we were making app. You talk about your users, like what do my users want and stuff. And I remember I had this very talented guy and he's like, you know what users are? Users are people with needles in their arms. That's why they call them drug users. We don't call the people who use our app or come to our website users. You know, we call them friends, you know, customers, believers, anything else like that. Um, and so as, as we try to build businesses and make money, like we forget that part. And we also take for granted that they're always going to care. Um, and I think that's the biggest Gen Z risk to some extent is that either they won't care or they'll care enough, but it won't, it won't really matter that they'll come to a, a live game or that they'll pay for a TV package uh, or anything like that. So we assume that like the idea of a fan and their team is unbreakable. Um, but you know, we also assume that everyone would go shop at a department store. Um, and I haven't been in a department store in five years. I, I buy light bulbs on Amazon because it's actually faster than me going to the corner hardware store if I'm too busy. Uh, so I think that the velocity of change is high and we've always got to think of like, what is in it? What is in it for the emotional attachment? And I think the last thing I'll say is that I remember I had uh, a guy who worked for me when I worked in education years ago, and he had grown up in Brooklyn and he had never actually been to a major league baseball game after the Brooklyn Dodgers famously moved to Los Angeles. And when I asked him, he used to talk about the fact that all of the Dodgers players lived in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, he would run and he would knock on the door of some famous baseball player and and the, and the player's wife or girlfriend would come out and he'd say oh is so and so can, can i say hi to them uh, do, do they want to come out and play stickball and they're like no he's sleeping for the game but maybe tomorrow and this idea that like i mean we're so far from that with security and famous people and everything else like that but i'll never forget that story because that idea that like the players and the teams were such a part of the fabric. Like, what is our modern version? Is it liking somebody's post? I don't know. It's running up and ringing somebody's doorbell and just assuming like, that's the baseball player and he lives there, not he lives on the top floor of some building that I'm never gonna get into and, and everything else like that. Dan, that's amazing to hear you say that because it comes across really how authentic and, and traditional your, your fandom is and you're clearly a sports guy. I'm not going to go through all the, the things you did in your career, which are amazing. You know, you're a serial entrepreneur that's had a couple of really big, successful exits. You've worked for Branson. You've worked for Endeavor. I'm going to go straight to 2016. You come up with the idea for Overtime. I'm really curious to understand what was the pitch in the sense, you know, that you got money from David Stern. You got money from Andreessen, I think. Uh, you got money from Kevin Durant. You also got knockbacks from people that said, you're too old to be thinking this. But tell us, what was the, the kind of like elevator pitch that you had? What was your insight that Overtime was going to become? So when I worked at Endeavor, <clears throat> I was on teams with other agents that kind of serviced the major sports leagues. And, you know, the, the sports leagues are very good at research and they're very good at data. And they had all kinds of data. People were choosing their favorite 
teams based on playing FIFA or Madden, you know, the level of interest of young fans, participatory sports was at an all time low. And so, you know, somebody somewhere said, gosh, we have to figure out how to engage this next generation in sports. Let's call all our agents from Endeavor. And so I came and I got all those pitches and I got access to all of that kind of research. And the biggest, you know, I I walked away from that and I thought, wow, there's like a whole opportunity to aggregate a whole new audience for sports. And sports is a weird thing because they're not there are not a ton of successful startups in sports. There are around betting and there are otherwise, but as compared to other spaces, you know, there's no Spotify of sports. There's, you know, it's, it tends to be because it's rights driven and otherwise it's, it's very hard to have innovation. And yet it's obviously, you know, it's a $90 billion global sponsorship market, obviously a very lucrative vertical and obviously a vertical where there's a ton of passion. I used to say like, you know, I didn't launch something in the food space because, you know, the number of people who say, holy smokes, there's a new brownie recipe. I'm so excited versus, you know, oh, you know, Messi's leaving Barcelona or something else like that. You know, one, one has a lot more traction and interest and than the other does, um, even though most people like brownies. And, and so for me, it was like, is it possible that anyone could go out there and get this new audience segment. And at the same time that I'm doing this, right, I'm building the digital talent business for Endeavor. And so I'm sitting on a floor and there's television agents and film agents and broadcast agents. And then I have all my agents who are signing the biggest YouTubers and everything else like that. And it's not an accident that the audience for all these YouTubers is fairly young. The talent themselves are fairly young. And, you know, there's this kind of, conflict between people on the traditional side saying like who cares about a video of somebody sitting in their bedroom you know talking to the camera when i have the premier hollywood talent here and i said i don't know but i can tell you a couple million people care because they are watching it every single day and so does it really matter why it just matters that and so i'm like it's so crazy that on this one side of the kind of Instagram, YouTube, creator, digital economy, like they're absolutely aggregating the largest kind of Gen Z millennial audience ever seen. And on the sports side, it's like totally absent. And so contrasting those things and and hearing what the leagues say, um, myself and, and some of the people I worked with were like, we should go out and figure out how to launch something that gets the next generation for sports. Um, And so from day one, the idea was about the audience. I think because we started around basketball and around high school basketball, people think it has to do with kind of high school or young people playing sports or club sports, or it has to do with basketball. Those were all just means to an end. It was like, if we could build a community of Gen Z sports fans, because we used all the tools and we talked to them in their language and we understood emotionally what sports meant to them and how to tell that story, um, I think we could be successful. And, and what you know is that, that anyone who's in that space already, an ESPN in the US, a Sky, anybody else like that, they have many masters to serve, right? They, they're still making an incredible living serving the 30-year-old, the 40-year-old, the 50-year-old. So they can't all of a sudden change the nature of how they talk about sports because they're gonna alienate all the people who are spending a lot of money with them So their success becomes a box in which they're trapped and that leaves an opening for us. Okay, so uh, here's the thing that, I mean, you you mentioned a couple of contradictions there that that, that are absolutely true, but here's the one that I like most of all. Your audience, the overtime audience, people say that this Gen Z uh, generation, they're they're transient, they're, they're faddish, you know, don't change your sports because they'll not be there tomorrow. They'll be on to the next hot thing. You've created a brand of belonging where, you know, the O is actually something they believe in, which is the opposite of transient. They feel belonging to the community that you've created. So is that the secret? Have you kind of like found 
uh, the, the identification, you know, you and I both come from the music business. Their uh, successful artists are usually ones that people can identify with. Is that what you've tried to do with Overtime? Show them aspiring young sports stars that look like them? Yes. And I and you're right. The community is a huge part of it. I went to a Atlanta Hawks basketball game last night and I looked across the arena and there was somebody I didn't know wearing a sweatshirt that said Overtime on it. Um, because they felt like, why do we wear any brand from Nike to Gucci to anything else? Because we think that the brand and the words of the, the brand that's the logo expresses who we are. I'm an athlete, I'm a hype beast, I'm anything else like that. And that person was like, oh, you know, this is expressing who I am. And I think understanding that level of the psychology, I mean, we were the first ones to ever actually tag athletes, meaning we put their Instagram handles in the captions because we realized that we were on a digital medium talking about people who you'd want to click through and see, and nobody did that. And it sounds really dumb and really small, but it, it, it's a it's a very clear example. We have, you know, right now through the month of December, our community team is doing this kind of OT give back. And we have all these things, we ask fans what they care about and what they're thankful for. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, they talk about being part of the overtime family or anything else like that. We're not trying to monetize them. We're not trying to sell them anything. We're giving them a chance to talk to us directly. Um, and then some of the people who say things like, I'm really thankful for this and that happened, they might show up in our Instagram story and everybody might see that and you create a big loop there. And so being, being part of the community isn't doing a food drive for the community, although food drives are awesome. It's about being in a conversation and a relationship with your fans and making sure that everything you're doing is aligned with what their hopes, fears, dreams are. I mean, during the, you know, almost two years ago, when we kind of were in the very first wave of shutdowns and the pandemic, I mean, we don't, we're not a fitness brand, but we just started going on Instagram live and just doing workouts for people who couldn't play sports and were trapped at home. And I'm not going to tell you that the people who led them are the greatest workout people ever. They were mostly our talent. But we said like, at that point, everyone's like, what is sports going to do? Because there are no live sports. And we said, what are we going to do? Because there's 10, 20, 30 million, 18, 20, 22 year olds who can't go out and play sports, whether it's casual or team sports, and they're losing a part of their identity and part of that community. And if we think that that's our number one goal and how to solve that versus like crying over the fact that there's no live sports, like we're going to be in a different position. And I just think it's a, it's just a mindset and it's, it's an approach to the world where everyone says that their customer comes first and their fan comes first. But um, I think you really have to, you know, you have to constantly think what that means. Again, you know, I would say that we've probably replied to over a million direct messages and comments and stuff like that. And that's a lot of work and you don't make money doing that. But, you know, you always say, you know, you respond to one person and that person is a fan for life. And I, I get direct messages, right? I have like a CEO Instagram account with about 5,000 followers and people hit me up and they ask me if I would like one of their recent photos or whatever. And then sometimes when I have time, I go on and I do all that and they say, oh my God, I can't believe, I didn't never expect that you would actually respond. Um, and so can I say that it is scalable to build fans one at a time? It's not, but I have this, mantra and i say it about our new sports league like let's just try to get 100 fans and if we can get 100 fans to love us and care about us and if we can relate to them then we can get 500 fans and if we can get 500 fans we can get a thousand fans and i think that that type of funnel mindset allows you to focus versus a very much like spray and pray like let's let's get a TikToker to show up at one of our games and now everybody thinks we're cool dan i'm, I'm interested you're um well, we're all four of us in the second half of our own sporting journey of life, and uh, we're we, we, you know there we are. We can't we can't pretend. And you also studied history, which I did. So there's there's something else: piano and history. That's quite cool. And then there's sports fandom as well. So we're we're, we're like brothers, maybe. Um, <laughs> but but I do have a question for you: is that you've with over time you've discovered 
the change of habit of Gen Z of how you thought the community of sport was going to interact better. And the journey is astonishing. And for students of the sports industry, I think you will be a, a, a at least a chapter or part of a chapter in, in the change, which is very exciting. But does it keep you awake at night that in the pace of technological change that has that we're all experiencing in the last 20 years with technology going from the internet and everything that's come from it, that habits will change again. And I don't know in what direction that means, but we talked about our old fandom, which is the same fandom of our grandparents, our great grandparents, in terms of the live sporting occasion, you go to the stadium, you buy your hot dog or popcorn or whatever it is, and, and that was it. It's now changed. Do you think, or does it worry you that it changes again and that there is a sort of, um, this is a, a, only a moment in time, or do you think this is here to stay? I, I think we're not in the, we're not at the end state of the change. I think that whatever, NFTs, the metaverse, Snapchat, I think all of those things show you that when you zoom out in a hundred years, this 20 to 25 year period will just look like, and this is when fandom changed from X to Y, but we're kind of in the middle of Y. Um, and so I mean, whatever I would, you know, I, I was with Roger at the sports pro conference and everyone was telling about how their software mints NFTs for you. And nobody a year ago knew what those three letters meant. So I, I think we're not at the end state. I think it's, it's a gradual change. Um, I, but I, I think it's, it's the same as remote work and our relationship with work, right? They have this trend on TikTok where they ask young people, what is your dream job? And the answer is, I don't dream about labor, right? And so, you know, people turning down jobs that are too many hours. Like I, I couldn't, I would, I would have taken any job I could have gotten when I was out of college. And so you see a transformation that's driven by a generation, the same way it was in the 60s, the same way it was in other times, this thing about sports and work and life. Um, you know, I mean, the, the number of YouTube videos you can watch about, you know, how to retire early, how to save money, how to not work, how to do all these other things. So I think there's a level of transformation. I think what's awesome is that it's really hard to compete when things aren't changing because the established kind of winners have a giant moat. But if things are changing and you can change as fast as they can, uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, if you look at the whole kind of NFT metaverse talk and everything else like that, um, I compare that to kind of the advent of the internet and then kind of the transition of web to mobile. You know, in the advent of the internet, obviously, I mean, many companies lost to internet native companies and it took them a long time to catch up. And even in the advent to mobile, I mean, the mobile phone was big way before Facebook ever built a native mobile application. And right, I sold my games company because I made a mobile game to a company that had made web-based games. And those were supposed to be internet native companies. Uh, you know, Nike just acquired a company, yeah. you know, all, all of these things. I think that we're at a point where the rate of change people are paying way more attention to, you know, Nike has a virtual world in, in one of these games and, and so forth. So I think that if anything, there's still a ton of change, although the larger companies realize that if they have the right leadership, they have to embrace that change more quickly. And I think there are places where they're not. So I will talk to companies that I think are competitors of over time or whatever. And Sometimes I even say, hey, have you ever considered investing in us? And they're like, oh, yeah, that'd be interesting. It takes up about six months to make a decision around here. And I'm like, six months? Forget that, you know, or, you know, so we're not at the end state, but the pace of change is your friend if you're trying to do something that's different. Dan, uh, I put a pin in something a little while ago, and I want to come back to that based on, on what you just said there. And that is this idea of urgency and the, and the pace of change. You know, we live in a world that that urgency seems to be created as a choice because the more urgent things are, the, the faster things move, the more different ideas we can either sell to people or shuffle the pack. And then once we get everybody fired up about something, hey, you know what? Pace, change. Let's, let's innovate. Let's bring something else. Do you think there's a downside to that in that 
that there isn't any chance for people to build something slowly, methodically, carefully anymore. And this idea of move fast and break things at Silicon Valley has done, done such a great job of inculcating in entrepreneurs around the world. Do you think it's wholly positive or is there perhaps a downside to it and that no one takes any time to perhaps build something thoughtfully and correctly anymore? Uh, I, I just think it kind of is what it is. Like, you know, I, I mean, and by the way, you could argue that probably about the automobile um, and the way that personal transportation changed how far we could work from home, how many places we could go, how we shopped, you know, so many different things like that. Um, and I think we've gotten really good at creating things quickly. And I, I can't, I can't more like it, it just kind of happens and it is what it is. And, you know, technological innovation, just like, you know, you know, industrial revolution, like they're all various forms of change and they're part of the evolution of society. And ultimately you have to believe a, either they're going to happen or they're going to be some net good. And the reality is, is we're all caught up in this. Like my parents know what the internet is and they're in their eighties. They have iPhones. I can text them. I can taught my dad how to use Venmo and send me money, you know? Um, and so, so for the person who says, I don't have enough time to build and really do it. I, I think that you have to, you have to separate kind of how that business thinks about the wants and needs of its customers versus its tactics. So sure, the tactics are always going to change. Now it's about TV ads, billboards, mobile targeting, cookies, whatever. Like that part, it doesn't matter. You can still have enough time to build something that resonates with people if you're not trying to, you know, build, do a trick or anything else like that. So um, I think if, if the value is there, you can have enough time to build that value. But I also think it's it's also not just about the pace of change, but honestly, it's about the nature of global capitalism. It's about the fact that interest rates are so low because money is used to stimulate yeah, business yeah. based from the government and all that money has to go somewhere. And so it's driving innovation at a faster pace because money rises to the point of low highest return. And that's certainly not investing in treasury bonds or anything else like that. And so, you know, and, and the returns are so outsized that you can afford to fail more. So, you know, it, it, you could argue that it's technological change, but it's also allocation of capital change in the macroeconomic environment that drives that. Yeah. Let me come into the last part, which is for, for me, the most fascinating thing. I'm a big believer in challenger uh, sports leagues and organizations. I love that comes from the fact that I believe that traditional sports federations, uh, FAs, whatever you want to call them, are never going to change themselves. It's just not in their DNA. They don't have the skill set or the attitude. I want to ask you this. Uh, today, you've built over time that as a, a community that we've described, your revenue model is basically, you know, branded content, long form uh, and merch, obviously merch. And I'm wondering, did you always think that you were going to use that community to disrupt sports leagues, particularly the NCAA in basketball? Or did that just, was that an aha moment one day in a bath? Because I'd love to think it was the first one, but I suspect it was the second one. Uh, when I when I rewrite history, um, I'll, I'll say it was the first one. <laughs> um, but it was never the it was never the plan. I don't think that we ever really thought about that. I think what we thought was if everybody in the world is telling us that they're struggling with uh, you know one audience segment and we go out and we say, hey, we got that audience segment that they would either partner with us or buy us because that's like the majority of startup companies go to solve a problem that someone else can't solve because they're very large and then they end up selling the company and they get a return. And, you know, that happened to me in the ticketing space. It happened to me in the mobile game space. Um, and, and obviously to, to, to the point embedded in your question, the various partners that we have couldn't, they saw that we did that, but it still didn't prompt them to act. 
Um, and so I would say it was kind of an incremental journey. It was this kind of like, wow, we built up this real community, um, but we actually don't really own any of this content, right? And you could even argue in the right space, like you own it until your deal expires and then somebody else owns it. Um, you know, I think it's a it's very interesting to look at the Netflix Formula One relationship and how successful Drive to Survive has been in creating a whole new class of fans for Formula One, but Netflix doesn't benefit by that at all other than people watching the show. Whereas if they had said, give me 1% of Formula One to do this show, it would have been an outsized win for them. Um, and th that's just a, a hypothetical, obviously. So, so I would say it was kind of like the deeper you get into something, the more you learn about it, the more you learn about your audience, the more you learn that you thought that every sports league in the world would want to partner with you. But, you know, it's hard for them to move that quickly because they're so big. The, the more time you spend with the athletes, you realize they're interested in a different path. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think it was this idea that we were doing such a good job of building something up and that at the end, you know, you could argue, for example, the NBA benefited because when all these players came to the NBA, they had these huge fan bases that we had created, but we didn't, we didn't get to enjoy the total fruits of. Um, and so I, I think it was just a lot of different things that starts out like, you know, man, this is so frustrating. I, I just wish we could have our own league one day. And then somebody kind of runs with that. And I'll give you a similar example. Like when we started, we used the iPhones to film a lot of content. And that was our strategy. The idea was phones could get places where big cameras couldn't. They were connected to the internet. You could get data really quickly. And what we found is, you know, if you ever try to film your friend or if you have kids, it's like you never know when something's going to happen in sports. So you go, you take out your phone, you film your friend running down the pitch or running, you know, going to make a basket. And most of the time, nothing happens. And you come home and you have 100 videos on your phone. And actually, only one of them is a highlight. So then you go and delete the other 99 because they're terrible and whatever. And I remember one of, uh, one of our employees said, you know, the amazing is like if you just made a DVR for the phone, like if you could just rewind right after the highlight happened, and go back and capture it. And that little insight actually caused us to build something that did that. And so those are kind of like your biggest wish things. You know, it would be amazing. Like if we weren't now elbowing everyone else trying to cover this. And every time we made an athlete big, everyone else jumped on and, and did X, but like we actually had control and we had our own league. That would be crazy. Well, we could never do that. Um, and then those ideas, just like you start to not be able to let them go and they take on a life of their own. Um, and now here we are. And Dan, this must be as the son of a sociologist. I mean, we're living in the middle of a sort of sociology, not experiment. But what you've done is you are capturing, let's not call it data, though I know it is first party data. And you have a huge amount of incredible insight on, on the fan base. How, and therefore that has, as you say, for partners, investors, sponsors could be very valuable because you can connect with people in their passion and in their community that they self-drive. In the time that you've, you've, you've set up and have there been things that have surprised you that you've learned about Gen Z, about the human, the young human fan in a modern iteration that has been, wow, I would not have expected that, that, that the way that they've kind of consumed sport has shocked you or content? I just wonder. Um, I, I think that I wouldn't say that I've underestimated, but I think given where legalized sports gambling is in the United States. Um, and I still find aspects of sports betting to be somewhat confusing, plus, minus, over, under, like, you know, all this stuff. And I tend to think of college students, for example, as not having a lot of discretionary income. But I think the speed at which something that is not at all a part of our culture until 2018 um, has become part of our culture so that even if you are not always betting, you're more familiar with that aspect of it. Um, I, I find it surprising because I, I tend to think of 
betting is a more traditional older person's thing. I'd say that the second thing is in sports betting, I kind of always understood this idea of like, you know, what's fun is to have some skin in the game, right? Like a, a sports match between two teams. I don't, neither of which I support is more interesting when I think I can win money. But what I've really learned is that it's a social outing. Like if a bed is made in the forest and it falls and nobody sees it, is it really a bed? <laughs> and the answer weirdly is not. Like I'm in group chats with like my son's friends who I play fantasy football with, which is a non-monetary thing. And they want to share their parlays because it's only interesting if they're able to talk to other people about it. Of and course. so the social nature of it, I think is, is fascinating to me. Um, and I, I think that the other thing which is true, and I am just a, observer of this and I, I think everybody knows this but just the, the 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 power we've gone from the only thing that matters is the team to the athlete to some extent um and it's not equally true in every sport but certainly you see like you know cristiano ronaldo leaves one team and they lose a million instagram followers or something like that in 20 minutes or anything else like that um and even the idea of people breaking their contracts and whatever. And, you know, I go back to that kind of thing I said before, which is like, you know, the TikTok thing. I don't dream of labor and everything else like that. But this idea that, you know, all of us grew up and we're like, oh, we got to get a job. You know, we got to keep the job. Like, you know, all, all of these ideas about, you know, work and the institution and our role in it versus young people and how they see themselves and how younger athletes see themselves and in, in, in playing all this i think is is really different and we haven't gotten necessarily uh to the end of that story um and i'd say the final thing that i think that i didn't know at all is i was more traditional i was like i call it like a whistle to whistle right like sports is what happens on the pitch or on the field and everything else is like what we derisively call shoulder content. But the fact is some of the most successful videos in the history of overtime have taken place outside of a game. You know, somebody nutmegging somebody in Times Square, a dunk that's happening at recess. Like this idea that sports and the things that I wanna consume as part of sports is so much broader. I mean, anybody who's an NBA fan will tell you that the most exciting about part of the NBA season is actually free agency and Twitter in July and August, sometimes more than other things. And this idea that this very conventional I note, you know, concept of only the live game and the live rights matters, um, you know, and no other highlights matter, uh, I, I found is really is not just wrongheaded, but I give credit to the younger audience that their idea, their idea in the NBA that what people wear as they walk into the arena is so interesting yeah. and what sneakers they're wearing and like all of these aspects that are so much more different than, you know, how many points were scored and how many minutes did he play and all of this other stuff like that. So I, I think that that's probably the biggest macro thing that I've really learned. Dan, I want to come back a little bit because I think you probably will go down a little bit as, and I don't know whether it's a, a an epitaph you want. I think you probably have started uh, overtime elite exactly at the the beginning of the end for for college sport. College sport had an, an amazing problem that needed to be solved, which was kids weren't getting paid. Uh, everybody else was getting paid. Coaches, um, athletics administrators. Uh, you, you see these days, you know, the amount's been thrown around for coaches and it's just an obvious thing. These people aren't getting paid and somebody can fix that. And and obviously Overtime Elite and its, and it's very simplest and, and most beautiful uh, idea is that you can give kids that decide not to go to college, you can give them a, a, a wage, you can give them also a scholarship if it doesn't lead to a professional contract I want to ask you this with the context of that, that I believe that this will open a door that will be devastating, truly devastating. Mate, you're not going to stop with one league, are you? You're going to do this in other sports, aren't you? Uh, I would like to create disruptive sports IP across different sports, for sure. And I, I, look, I would say that 
there's always going to be an aspect of college sports because if you go to a four-year college, it's like being from a certain city. You know, there's a huge part of bonding in your identification. I think that college sports is interesting because the audience is very big, but it's actually kind of a, a long tail audience. I'm not really a fan of a college sports team of a college that I didn't go to, right? I could switch my city team. I could say, well, I grew up in Philadelphia, but I live in Brooklyn, so I'm going to be a Nets fan. I'm not going to switch my college team because, you know, I, I went to a different college because I didn't go to a different college. So I, I think you're going to see change. I think it will always exist in one form or another. And Certainly in football, a lot of it is about tailgating and the physical aspect of it. But I think it becomes harder and harder to justify coaches making tens of millions of dollars um, and players not participating in that. And even players getting injured and losing their scholarships and all, all kinds of things like that. But again, you know, all of the change uh when you're in the middle of it seems slow, but I think we'll look back in history in 50 years and see, see you know, a, a 90 degree, if not 180 degree change there. Dan, listen, it's been a fantastic uh, hour and change. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to spend with us and, and and for being so open. It's been, it's really given us a lot to think about. And, you know, listening to you in this conversation, it makes it so much more obvious to me why Roger was so keen to have you come on and join us because uh, the two of you think very, very similarly about this stuff. And, uh, and he's been a great guiding light for me in understanding this stuff more. So I can't thank you for kind of furthering that process in this conversation. Well, Dan, I only have one other further question is I'm dying to know what hotel um, chain it is that doesn't have the adapter plug in the right place. I want you to name and shame. Well, haven't you paid the bill yet? Honestly, it's probably almost every hotel chain uh, <laughs> to, to, to some extent. Um, I do like this hotel, uh, so I'm, I, I can't shame them, but it, it, it's it's so, you know, it, it's so many of them. And it's so, I think about all the time, like, think about when you get off the airplane and like, you're just standing there and like, you can't, your bags out. I'm like, is really this, is this the best way to board and get off of an airplane? Like, there's so many things that seem so fakakta to use a yiddish word that we never think about changing and i look i remember when i worked for richard branson we worked on virgin america which was subsequently subsumed by alaska airlines and there was this idea you were just going to order food from your seat um and it was kind of revolutionary but it was interesting about the whole flow of everything i think we're getting to a point where you know that screens on airplanes add a tremendous amount of weight which is actually bad for fuel efficiency. And yet we all have screens in our pocket. So why don't you just let me consume whatever there is on my pocket instead of hanging a screen on the back, which actually increases my cost and reduces fuel efficiency. So I, I just think like everything that I look there, you always just kind of wonder why. And sometimes they're for great reasons that I don't understand. And other times, you know, you, know, you, you always see some product and you're like, wow, why didn't anybody ever think of that before? Like, and the answer is they just didn't think about it. Well, whilst you know, you're, they just well, didn't do it. Well, whilst you're there in the hotel, you could riddle me why they so often kettles don't fit under the taps properly and you can't fill the taps up when you want a cup of coffee. I, I agree. I actually, I completely know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and that, that to me is also, uh, is also enormously annoying. I, I love this thing they have in the airports, at least in the US, where you can fill up uh your own bottle of water before you go on the plane and it has a little counter and it says you know x amount of tons of plastic were saved by you filling up with this thing that we have right here so i think that i think it's like the only thing that stops us is supporting and unlocking the creativity of so many different people to kind of assume that none of these problems are ever in an end state of being solved well, with, with any luck, we can all end up living in a world built by Dan Porter and Giles Morgan. I know that's something <laughs> that I'd like to experience. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Um, listen, just let people know where they can follow you on LinkedIn and find out more about Overtime and all the crazy good things you're doing. Yes. So I'm Dan Porter on LinkedIn. I'm TFADP on Twitter. Um, and Overtime is just at Overtime on pretty much every social platform you could imagine. Phenomenal. Dan, thanks so much and the best of luck with everything as you go forward with this project. Thank you, Dan. Thank you guys so much. Have a, have a great day. Bye. 
Well, there we go, fellas. That was right, as I said, you know, it's uh, you, you guys are two peas in a pod. It's fascinating to listen to, to Dan talk about the stuff, and it, it just it echoes so much of what you've been talking about over the over really over the life of Are You Not Entertained? You know, it's it's funny. I mean, a bit, apart from all that stuff about sport, you know, if you just that bit at the end, what comes across with Dan Porter is he's somebody that's always going through life saying, you know, why do we do it this way and why can we not do it another way? And, and you know, he's a serial entrepreneur for a reason with sig- very significant exits. I find it fascinating that, you know, he's basically the same age as us. He's the same generation as us. A lot of people thought that, that his vision around the audience collation of Gen Gen Z uh, could not be done by somebody of his age. But the fact is that um, it's not the number of, that's um, on your birth certificate, it's the eyes you've got. And he's got young eyes, he's got curious eyes. And I truly believe that what he's doing with Overtime Elite and how he's changing the whole, if you can call it this, supply chain of uh, young athletes into the NBA and through college or not, as the case may be now, is truly, truly disruptive. And as as you said, Grant, I've been looking at this for two or three years and I've always been frustrated that people didn't get this. This is about the audience bottom up into creating new stuff. It's not about sport top down with some fucking strategy that says, how do we get Gen Z? That's the wrong way to think about it. Dan saw this in 2016 and he's now disrupting, you know, uh, college basketball. And he ain't stopped, guys. He ain't stopped there. Well, I think what I've taken from um, from today's show, and, and we've had so many of them this year as we hurtle towards the end of 2021, is that I think for us, and I hope our listeners, is I'm just learning so much from some of the people who come on, the, their, their vision of the world. But what I was really, I was not expecting, and, and rather like when we had Jerry Cardinal on the week before, is that these are sports fans. This guy, Dan, is a sports fan to his core. He clearly knows. Yes, he is. He really loves sport. He's just reimagined it differently. And that, to me, is encouraging because we are now learning to to embrace a new way across all walks of life. And it, just for me, though, I, I just know I could go and have a beer with him, now, now discover, play the piano, and bore on about history. Perfect. Good night out. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, fellas, that's all we have time for this week. I'm off to... Uh... Watch my recording of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Um, I, I'm sure it's just a very boring event. I haven't seen anything about it in the news. <laughs> just, just, just be like buzzer. Just watch the last minute. <laughs> yeah, right. No, we'll, 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 no doubt we'll end up talking about this in in weeks to come, fellas. But look, as always, a lot of fun. My thanks to you out there for listening to us. Please follow us on Twitter if you don't do so already. You'll find us quite easily if you type in at entertained r. That's the word a r e. You'll find me on Twitter at TTMYGH. I'm going to jump in before Giles and let them know that they can follow producer James. We need to let people know about that more often. You'll find him at AIF James, I believe. James, give me a nod if that's the case. I can see you there, hiding away, at AIF James. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can follow myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, I'm going to go out on a limb. And wish you both a Merry Christmas and risk the wrath of the internet for doing so. May all your dings dong merrily over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. 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 Thank